This programme was made with the support of the Broadcasting Authority of Ireland. My name is Ed Keeley and over the next three programmes I'm going to take you on a journey to explore the history and natural history of one of Ireland's most important nature reserves, the North Bull Island. This series will look at some of the over 1100 species of organisms which call the island home, including its mammals, birds and plants, and explore why the island is such a valuable natural resource situated as it is on the doorstep of our capital city and the threats that still face its wild inhabitants. The North Bull Island was made Ireland's first bird sanctuary in 1931, thanks much to the work of Father P.G. Kennedy, and the island is now a National Nature Reserve, a special area of conservation, and a UNESCO Biosphere Reserve. Kennedy's book An Irish Sanctuary, The Birds of the North Bull, inspired a generation of naturalists, and it is with Father Kennedy's book that our journey to explore one of Ireland's most important natural treasures will begin. In former days there were certain privileged places where king's writs did not run, where men took refuge in order to escape vengeance of the law or of the private enemies and where they were inviolable, in some cases for a definite period, in other as long as they remained within the sacred precincts. This right of sanctuary or asylum was recognised by the religious and civil authorities and to violate it was regarded as a sacrilege and a profanation. By the end of the 18th century, in Europe generally, the right of sanctuary for hunted men had completely disappeared. Now, from the early years of the present century, this old meaning of sanctuary has been revived to designate certain places where birds may enjoy freedom from persecution, not only during the close season, but at all seasons. Before 1930, we had no bird sanctuary in Ireland. The reason which outweighed all others for the choice of the North Bull was the educational and cultural value of having a bird sanctuary so near to the city of Dublin with its schools, colleges and universities. The order was signed by the Minister in July 1931 and the North Bull became the first bird sanctuary legally established in Ireland. There was great jubilation among all the naturalists as it was fondly imagined that this small area at Dollymount, with its legal sanction, was now sacred and inviolable forevermore. To find out how the North Bull Island came to be, I met with local historian Dennis McIntyre, who told me the fascinating story of the birth of the Bull Island and how it is still growing to this day. Okay, I'll start by just getting you to introduce yourself first, please. Well, hello everybody. My name is Dennis McIntyre, and for my sins, I'm involved in many, many projects in Clontarf, and one of them I undertook some years ago to compile a history of the locality. So, uh, I love to get the honorary title of being a local historian, but I'm no more than uh, somebody who's gathered information on the area and love the area, particularly where we are now down here on the the Bull Island, better known probably as the North Bull Island. Can you tell me that this isn't, the island is what's left now, but it wasn't the first island that was in and around Clontarf area? No, it was not. Uh, Clontarf seems to have always loved the, the company of an offspring, if we like, if you like to put it that way. But down towards the, the Fairview end of Clontarf, 
There was a little island simply known as Clontarf Island. Now it was small compared to today's Bull Island, it wouldn't even be a quarter of the size of the Bull, but it was a very important place and used a lot by Dubliners for many reasons. First it was, um, it had a little beach, it had a swimming pool, and it had sand, very fine sand. So when Dubliners weren't using it for recreational purposes, for swimming or sunbathing or whatever, they were robbing the sand off it. And, you know, at that time it wasn't that far off the shore. And, you know, with all the robbing of sand and changing everything else, the island began to disappear. And eventually, it, in a great, great, great storm, one of the worst storms experienced in Dublin or in the country, and it was, uh, I think it was 1847, the island disappeared completely into the sea. So, you know, Clontarf seemed lonely without its island, but compensation soon came in the, in the form of the North Bull Island. Now, the growth of the North Bull Island is, is phenomenal. And, you know, if you want to go back and trace its history properly, you'd have to go back to the 17, about the year 1715. The Dublin port um, operators had great trouble, even at that early stage, of getting ships properly into Dublin port. The problem being, the port was forever silting up. The mouth, the, the, where, you know, Dublin's three main rivers, the Paddle on the south side, the Liffey in the middle, and the Talk of the north, they all entered the sea more or less, you know, at the one point, really. And they really had to... The water had to make its way out through all the sand and silt that was forever forming in the bay, in the mouth of the river. So as ships got larger, as time went on, they simply couldn't enter Dublin port. And they had to be, ships bringing cargo and that, simply had to, to um, anchor out in the bay and you had smaller boats and that took the cargo ashore. Now, this was particularly sore on Dublin in the sense that, that say in the 17th, 18th century in particular, Dublin was very dependent on coal, and a lot of coal coming from Wales in particular, and the ships could not get through. So they had to sit down, the, the, the port authorities, that is, had to sit down and, and, and sort of think this out and see what could be done. Now, they, the first thing they did was study the waters in the bay and the direction of currents and so on. And it was found that the main currents, the peculiar currents in Dublin Bay, mainly came up from the south from the, the Wexford Wicklow area. And they carried a lot of what we'd now call flotsam and gypsum and ooh, sands and sand and pebbles and so on. And a lot of this became dumped when, when the uh, currents came across the three rivers entering the bay, they deposited a lot of their silt there. And this happened time and time again. So the first thing the authorities decided would be a good idea was to build a South Bull Wall. So they built a South Bull Wall as early, they started this as early as 1750, 1720. And it's that purple wall, uh, known to many, it's, it's about five kilometres long and it was a marvellous project to undertake in, in such early days. Now they had to rebuild it later, but um, for a while it served its purpose in deflecting the waters away from the, the, where these three rivers entered the bay. But it was only temporary. They deflected the water out, uh, out into sort of the middle of Dublin Bay, but then again the curtains took over at the end of the wall and they swept these materials out towards Hoth. And again, the configuration of the, tie, the, the the waves and the currents in Dublin Bay brought the stuff back in again. And what happened? They started to lodge the other side of the wall. So they still reached the mouth of the river. And that saw the birth of the Bull Island as well, because a lot of the stuff on the way back began to uh, deposit itself on roof um, early kind of dunes that were there. So we saw the very early birth of the Bull Wall. And after a while, you know, years later, the Port Authorities realised the South Bull Wall wasn't enough. They were still had the problem, and it was costing a fortune because we had to we had to um, employ Dutch dredgers to come and dredge them several times. It was a big job, but the Dutch were brilliant at that, and but it was costing a lot of money. So we had to sit down, put on the thinking caps again, and see what to do about this. 
Now, this time, the idea of the North Bull Wall arose. Now, a lot of people uh, say and claim that a man called William Bly, Captain William Bly, was the first to suggest the Bull Wall. He was not. It was suggested 100 years before he was born, but it never came to fruition. What Bly did, Bly was the guy who was involved with the, in the, the mutiny and the bounty. He came to Dublin as, a, as an earlier phase of his career. He came to Dublin as a cartographer, a, a math maker, and he worked for the Din, Din Ballast Board, I think it was. Uh, what Bly did, he, he drew or created a beautiful map of Dublin Bay, which we still have to this day, one of the finest ever drawn, and one of the first as well. And it was the first map to pinpoint an island off Clontarf. And those of you who know Clontarf well, Manresa House is just in off the Clontarf Road. And the island is represented as a, a speck about the size of your fingernail opposite Manresa House. And that's the first representation we have of the island. And we know, therefore, it was here before the Bull Wall was built. Because a lot of people think it, it appeared only after the Bull Wall. It didn't. There was, a, there was about a three kilometre of it uh, as time went by that used to disappear under the water. But it was the base was there. So anyways, the, the idea came about that we needed a second wall, a North Bull Wall. So it was decided to go ahead with North Bull Wall. So first thing they did was build the North Bull Bridge to gain access to start building the wall because from the beginning the idea was not to, you know, to cut the sea off uh, totally from from its uh, its circular path around the island, if you like. So that was the the Bull Bridge, the wooden Bull Bridge we know today. The first one was built in 1819 to facilitate the building of the wall itself. So the wall was built in between roughly between 1820 and 1823. It was built sort of perpendicularly out into the sea. Now, if, if, if you look at it properly, the idea was to trap the tide inside. And the bull wall is in kind of two, two parts, if you like. Um, the first half of it is kind of what we call a, a, a subtidal, super tidal, if you like. And the second half is, is lower. The idea is when the tide goes out, there's 1,000 feet between the south bull wall and the north bull wall. When the tide is going out, it begins to drop. And when it reaches the end of the higher part of the bull wall, it drops. And then all of it is forced out between the two walls. And that forcing, and believe you me, it, 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 does, it did force and cleans, scours the bay, scours the mouth of the, the estuaries of the rivers. It has worked magnificently well. However, the other legacy was, if you call it a legacy, and I think we were entitled to call it a legacy and a good legacy, was the real birth of the bull then. Uh, as I said, it, it had already appeared, but not all of the above high tide. Now, the sands and pebbles and stuff that I'm talking about. And remember, even up, up to then, and we're talking about the 1820s now, city rubbish, a lot of stuff city rubbish, first from inland went into the rivers, which carried into sea. Some were thrown directly into sea. And then the sea brought all this rubbish, which being tossed and turned about in the sea, turned into kind of a, a zoomy kind of loam and all that with sand and pebbles and the rest that the sea carries god only knows dead bodies and animals and fish and whatnot all again travel the walls didn't change the direction of the tides they kept them away from the mouth of the river all right but they still came up along the the south bull wall headed out towards Hoth. the then accordance brought it back in again and now what did they hit they hit the bull wall so everything was stopped there, and then the island really began to grow. And ever since, in 1801, the island, I said, was the, the size of the, your fingernail. Um, in about 50 years, it, it was, you know, three kilometres long. It's now five long and about a thousand metres wide, and it's ever growing. And the island now has, it has a beach as well, Dolly Monstrand, beautiful beach, and it has turned out to be an amazing amenity for the people of Dublin, uh, well, for anybody. And it's what you call a land mass growing and developing. You can study land growing. You know, the island we're used to living in is what, our land is what, millions of years old probably. This is new. This is different. We can see it evolving. It's an ecological work of art in progress, if you like. And consequently, it's, it's um, studied by thousands and thousands of students from our own universities and from, from, from worldwide, if you like.
Kieran McNally is an author and historian and he recently published a book on the island entitled The Island Imagined by the Sea, A History of the Bull Island. I met Kieran to find out what inspired him to write his book and to tell me some of the island's dramatic history. My name's Kieran McNally. I'm a historian and writer. Um, I've been living in Dublin since 2000 and coming and going to Bull Island for since that time. I was down on the Bull Island cleanup with my with my son Hugh, and um, we were going through the marshes and um, picking up litter. And Hugh got a little bit tired, but the the marshes were quite swollen with water because of um, unseasonal flooding. And uh, we found we'd have to go a very long way back to get to get back to um, our, our car. Um, so we decided to take a little shortcut back by jumping onto a little island. And I put Hugh on my shoulders and jumped onto the island, but we landed badly and uh, I broke an ankle. So um, eventually we got rescued. But I decided then when my ankle was in plaster to try and find out a little bit more about the island and... You know, what, what was this island that had bit me? And I realised I didn't really know that much about the island. Um, so I just started to look up stuff about the island and I slowly became more and more fascinated. I realised I'd been looking at the island in a kind of black and white because um, I, I was kind of environmentally illiterate. Um, I didn't know the names of the birds. I didn't know the different species. And yet once I started looking into it, it was like the whole island suddenly took on colour and extra texture um, in a really rewarding way. So I, I, I built a lot of that into the into my book on Bull Island and um, um, I've tried to allow readers to see the island in that kind of initial way of just slowly getting to know and learn it without it becoming overly technical, um, just getting a feel for all those different aspects. This island was made for poets. When the vagrant wind sweeps through the quaking grass, it ruffles the mythical blue hair and the European rabbit. It jostles the marsh and honeybee orchids, and on the foreshore, its breath lifts the sands into scattered wisps that swirl and dance through the dunes and cord grass. All over the island, lovers drift and stray. The air is sonorous with the shuffle of waves and cries of migrant birds. It is heavy with the scent of the sea and its salt marshes. So the island, as you said, it, it, it's only a couple of hundred years, but it's packed a lot of action into those couple of hundred years, you would say. Yeah, it's it's phenomenal the amount of um, things that have gone on on the island. Um, the most dramatic, of course, are the series of shipwrecks that have occurred. Um, the bay has hundreds of wrecks, but the island itself, there's at least 175 in the immediate bull, bull area. If you come down onto the beach any day, you can find bits of coal from ships like the, um, the Favourite Nanny uh, and various collier ships that um, their coal got spilled over or deliberately dumped when they hit, hit the wall itself or hit the sand. So you can actually still find bits of coal that are hundreds of years old since they were deposited there. If you come down on a low spring tide, you can actually see shipwrecks. Um, I have some great photographs of my kids standing beside the, the ribs and carcass of an old shipwreck. I think it's uh, 18th century. Um, so those kind of things are the, the dramatic aspects of the island. You also find bits of flotsam and jetsam in terms of old parts of ships washing up. Um, when the uh, city are dredging the bay or when the uh, 
burying pipelines, they occasionally disturb wrecks, and they'll float up on the, on the island too. So that's quite a dramatic thing to see. You also have a kind of slightly more uh, darker side with um, various uh, bodies washing up um, from either accidental death in boating accidents or um, the suicides. And yeah, they're, they're kind of harder for people to deal with. But this island has, it's kind of got uh, two sides to it. It's, it's absolutely heaving with life once you learn to see that. But if you come down here on a winter's evening, it might seem desolate and dead to you, you know, and uh, it might seem like a fitting place for those that are beyond consolation. Okay, so the, as you said, the island has a somewhat, there's some melancholy associated with the history, but it also has a, a bit of a, a literary tradition, and, and Joyce in particular is, is famous for a, a few passages uh, that refer to the Bull Island. Yeah, the, the, the island is absolutely swarming with, with poets and writers. You can take up shooting them. Um, Joyce is the most famous. Um, portrait has um, the famous scene of the bird girl, but um, he also uh, covers it in Ulysses and Finnegan's Wake. Um, and one of the reasons for that is that Joyce just lived down the road in, in Fairview and, and he, he holidayed bit on the island came up here to swim and so so it has a strong personal resonance with him although saying that Joyce did live in half, half of the city which is why he he wrote such a good book about it um, but uh, one of the famous parts in Ulysses involving the island is is Bloom's musing on developing the island and Joyce would have taken that from contemporary ideas um, where people wanted to build a sort of Coney Island at one stage and pave the island and bring in fun fairs and um, various amusement um, arcades and stuff. Uh, Joyce, of course, wanted to have readers, book uh, rooms for readers as well, which is kind of a real bookworm fantasy. As far as I know, nobody else wanted that. Um, But uh, he really... um, by Ulysses, it's not really Joyce's uh, own opinion, I think. I think he, his love of the island is much closer in portrait. He's much more with nature at that stage. But um, there's a kind of urban dystopia building in in Ulysses. Um, but Roddy Doyle has set stuff here. Uh, the poet Kevin Fowler wrote some nice stuff. Um, and there's just, they're just all being here, you know. If you live in Dublin, it's a, an obvious place to go to seek inspiration you don't really need to seek it it just finds you it just jumps out at you and um, you know people come here they come to um, look at themselves as much as look at the island it's um, you know it's not for nothing that mirrors are made of sand you walk along a five kilometer beach and you can you can find an awful lot to work on and you can also like all of Ireland's islands you can use it as a place to look at Ireland from um, you you think about your city or your country in a, in a different way because you've, you've kind of stepped outside of it even just a short way. So that's a really um, one of the reasons why it just seems to be so popular um, with the writers. Pains have been taken to make the catalogue of the birds of the sanctuary as complete as possible up to the time of writing. And in the following pages, 156 species are brought under review. This number will no doubt be increased in the future, as most of our wild birds, even of the so-called residents, 
are to a greater or less extent migratory. Any species on the Irish list may on occasion visit the sanctuary, while there is always the possibility of some other species, hitherto unknown, recorded, turning up as a vagrant, maybe, from the continent or from America. When Father Kennedy published his book in 1953, it was the first work of its kind and it inspired a new generation of Irish naturalists, including Tom Cooney, a botanist and ornithologist who has continued Kennedy's work of documenting and studying the island's rich flora and fauna, including its bird populations. I went down to the Bull Island with Tom on a beautiful April morning to try and track down some spring migrants. The other marsh that we're coming up to now is a lot of gorse bushes and um, other features, other scrubby features. And um, in springtime, as we are now, we get a lot of small birds. Um, they migrate up from sub-Saharan Africa. Songs, songbirds that are quite common throughout Ireland and the Northern Hemisphere, uh, certainly in Europe. Uh, you get willow warblers and chiffchaffs. And the island has so little scrub on it, natural scrub, that it's a great place to watch for migration at this time of year. Um, and today now we hope to see maybe one or two of these birds um, just passing through the island. They land here, spend maybe a few hours or maybe a day or so feeding. Like all other birds, they're just building up their energy to actually migrate further north. And so one of the, one of the great things that people are interested in birds is, is to watch out for these, because it's our chance to watch migration in action from one part of the globe to the other. And so we'll have a little look around now and we we'll see if we can find something. So uh, but I, I think it's probably a good idea now that if we we come up through the Alder Marsh and just have a, have a look through the bushes here because the migrant birds could be just in there feeding. Uh, it's a bit overcast today so it depends, usually, usually they, they'll feed um, if the sun comes out because a lot of them are insect feeders and so when the sun comes out you'll, you'll find the insects are coming out and that's when the birds start feeding. But um, it's a bit of a wind today so there mightn't be anything but we'll have a look. I guess as you said earlier on, it's always nice to find the first one of a new year or something like that, isn't it? Well, it's nice to see the first one, okay, but th there's also another aspect to it that's, that's really quite interesting, in that um, with uh, climate change uh, and our seasons becoming warmer, certainly our, our winters and our springs over time, uh, perhaps these birds don't have to be away for quite as long as they used to be, because they only went away because our winters were so cold um, in the Northern Hemisphere. So if, if it's getting milder in spring, um, the whole idea is now and the belief is and there's evidence for it is that these birds are arriving back earlier and earlier every year into the northern hemisphere and this is perhaps a reaction to milder climate in the northern hemisphere um, the birds are responding in this way and so although we, we see one here and we get very excited too the overall uh, you know research is, is showing that these birds are arriving earlier so when, where, where we come down and we hope to see one a little earlier it's part of a much wider pattern and here on the island um, we're recording information on the migration patterns of the birds and um, it'll take many years to build up a good, a good you know a good bit of data but hopefully we'll be able to see or we'll be able to at least you know gauge in some way what's happening are they arriving earlier every year and almost certainly we will find that so it's very exciting just to be both to record it but actually to keep a record of it so we can look back in 20 or 30 or 40 or 50 years time at actually what we've achieved because it's both exciting on the day but it's also a contribution to citizen science it's also a contribution to the science as well of, of board research i'm gonna to have to slosh through this the older marsh of course is an excellent place for vegetation um, it's it has kind of slightly brackish water on the island uh, the island is surrounded by salt water, but this is this is more like um, a freshwater marsh inside the islands. It's a it's a depression between the sand dunes, and in winter, 
and in spring as we are experiencing at the moment it's full of water um, but botanically it's excellent this area one of the best places on the east of Ireland and of course we have lots of interesting insects including the butterflies of the island um, so if it's okay we're going to have a little look in here now so be careful so we're standing in here among um, sorry I thought I heard maybe it didn't sorry bed no 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 sorry. I can notice sounds in the background but I thought I heard a little quickly just there I might have been mistaken though. Well, no, we'd have a look. Just, I, th I thought I heard a willow wobbler singing there. Um, There's something there, did you see that? Okay, um, Okay, we're standing in the um, the very northern piece of scrubbery on the island and we've been looking for migrants and just this very minute uh, I heard a beautiful little song of a bird called a willow wobbler. It's a lovely, lovely light green bird and uh, hopefully now it'll sing in a few minutes. And what it's doing is it's just jumping around feeding on a few insects. This bird is probably just going to land on the island and it'll go straight further north um, and keep migrating, go to the north of Scotland. I think it's in the green, the green there on the left hand side, Tom, the green bush over here. Yeah. We'll go forward and see if we can hear it. It's come back left again, yeah. So this is the excitement of bird watching. This bird has probably <laughs> arrived up from Wicklow or Wexford overnight. It could have come up from Spain the day before. Um, and we're just seeing it now for the first time and it's probably going to head up up across the, the north coast of Ireland, could stay uh, somewhere in Ireland, it might go to Scotland, it might even go up to Scandinavia. So we're just seeing it today and it's on migration. This is what some people call vismig, it's a term some, some people might use to describe visible migration. This is not a bird that's, that's from here. It's on a five or 10,000 kilometre journey and we're just seeing it for the first time. And so it's very exciting. So now we'll record that um, as part of the pattern recording. And so we, we can time when they're coming to the island, when when the best time to see them is. So we're going to try and find it if we can hear it sing. It's one of the most beautiful songs, and it's one of the most iconic songs for, for people interested in birds to listen to. It's a beautiful, sweet, melodious, warbling song. And, uh, and as I said, it's, it's a willow warbler. Yeah. It's one of the warbler family. And the name warbler comes like you would sing, you would warble. And it, willow is the habitat. It would, it would normally be, people thought it would be so, willow bushes. And so wetlands, uh, in marshy areas and here we are in a marshy kind of area uh, with willows and things so it's just coincidence we happen to be in the habitat where its name is but it doesn't matter uh, it's on migration and we have so few shrubs on the island that all you have to do is simply come down in springtime and listen and you'll, you'll, you'll hear them and then maybe if you're lucky enough you'll see them so we're going to try here if we can or we're going to go and try and find the board again we might be able to record it singing it's probably the most exciting time of year is watching these, mi these migrant birds arriving um, they're excited, they're finding food. Well, I think they're excited anyway, I'm excited. We're all excited. But um, they're, you know, you, you can see with their activity, they've been migrating all night, they've used a lot of energy, they're in a place with a bit of food, seem safe, and they're feeding away. They feed absolutely non-stop on migration. They have to keep, all the energy they're, they're using up, they have to keep replacing that energy. So birds like this on migration, when the conditions are right, all they do is feed. And they generally ignore you. They just that's all they want is more insects. Not interested in anything else. Another kind of interesting thing to kind of reflect on when you're you're looking at a bird jumping around on a bush here on Northwell Island is that you have to remember the journey that this tiny little bird has undertaken. It's I mean, a couple it's of grams, isn't tiny, it? A few grams in weight. And it gives this beautiful song, it gives the people interest and a bit of pleasure. But even if you don't know but it, it gives them pleasure because they hear the song and it's always nice, even if they don't know what it is. But when you consider this bird it's in Bull Island, North Bull Island, Dublin Bay and that's in the centre of the east coast of Ireland, halfway along the coast. It's a long, long way down to, to uh, Iberia, which is almost certainly come true. 
It's a long way from North Africa, which is almost certainly passed through. It's a long way from the Sahara, which is almost certainly crossed over. And it's a long way from Sub-Saharan Africa, which are probably wintered. This bird has travelled thousands and thousands of kilometres, and we're watching it here. It's undertaken a migration that is phenomenal, absolutely phenomenal. And here it is in front of us. So when you actually think about the journey, it's not just the bird itself. You think about this tiny little thing wearing a couple of grams has come all this distance. And they just, you know, that's probably what makes us so excited about it. When we understand what it's done, even a few weeks ago, this was, this, this was south, south of the equator. It's just, it's, hard to, it's incredible. This tiny little thing has made its way up here, this tiny little thing. And there are millions of them doing it every year. And it's right in front of us now, picking insects off a hawthorn bush. Join us next week for part two of our series, where we will spend the morning with the island's iconic Brent geese, we take a botanical walk, and we look at the island's butterflies and rich marine ecosystem. This programme was made with the support of the Broadcasting Authority of Ireland.